You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Well, today, I'm bitter at Dave Lomas for leaving. <laughs> this is um, Emo Church Round 2, and we are talking about today breaking the power of the past. Woohoo! <laughs> um, just in the title, there's a few things we know. Uh, one, we all have a past. Um, I'd say that most of us uh, have things in our past broken, places, uh, hurts, wounds, experiences that we would like to forget and that we run away from. And we're going to dive into some of those today. Um, We also have to recognize that there is power in the past that dictates us today. But most importantly, we need to remember that everything of the past is broken in Jesus. We are set free. Uh, That's where we're going today. Um, I do want to tell you, if you are a parent and you have uh, younger kids in the sanctuary with you today, some of these things will be a bit intense. Uh, So I want to give you a heads up. This might be a good day to go into the kids' ministry. All right. Now that everyone is uh, nice and tense, let's go ahead and (laughs) open the Bible to Exodus chapter 20, which will be our launching pad for today. Exodus chapter 20, where Moses and the Israelites have left Egypt and are now at Mount Sinai. And God calls Moses up to Mount Sinai to give him a word. He says that you are no longer slaves in Egypt. I've made you a new people. You have a new identity. You are mine. And because of that, here is how you will live. And so Exodus chapter 20, we're going to read verses 1 through 6. And God spoke all of these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. And I lost my microphone. Good. Who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. And this is where we're going to dial in today. Verses 5 and 6. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But... Showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Again, God says, I am a jealous God. I punish the children, the children, for the sin of their parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. And yet, I show love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Generations of sin, generations of blessing, all right? 
That's what we're going to talk about today. Let's pray. Oh, God. Um, we need you here today, Father. God, as we faithfully, because I believe you're calling us to this, God, we step into deep waters today, Lord. Scary places. Places, God, that we have avoided probably for a long time. And today, God, we, we need you because without you, God, we, uh, we're ruined by these things. But you made us a promise. You promised, God, that we would, in seasons of our life, we would lie down in green pastures by still waters, God. And we'd experience the peace of your presence. And God, you also promised that there would be seasons we walk through the deepest, darkest, scariest places, the valley of the shadow of death all around us. And your promise was the same, that we would have the peace of you with us. So God, we want to move forward today, not in fear, Lord God, but we want to move forward in peace. We want to run to you as our refuge. God, we want to face those things of our past that have dictated our present. By your grace, Lord God, would you lead us into those places today. In Jesus' name, amen. Every one of us has a story. Uh, one of my favorite things to do, or, or what we used to do before we had kids. There were a lot of things we used to do before we had kids. Um, my wife and I would go to the mall, and we would uh, be at the food court or whatever, and we would just watch people. People watching is really entertaining. And the thing I always used to think about is I wonder what their story is. If you could sit down with every person and just hear their story, I think we'd be amazed. Amazed at the stuff we have all walked through. In our life, we all have a story, we all have a past, and that story is being continually written every day. A new chapter, a new paragraph of our story is being written every single day. Now, I want to get something out into the open with all of us. Some of you have a horrible past. Amen. <laughs> that guy. Some of us have a terrible, terrible past. Um, some of you have had things said to you that should never, ever be said to a human being. Some of you have had things done to you that are reprehensible. Some of you have done things to yourself, said things to yourself that are in incredibly destructive. And painful. And, and I think what we're talking about today is recognizing those places. 
recognizing that there are these deep, dark things that uh, fester inside of us that God is not content for us to hold on to. It's not okay with him for us to hold to those broken things. So we're going to talk a little bit today about the power of those things and what God's promises are to deal with them. Um, If you've ever read the book or watched the movie, Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, Okay movie, terrific book. Uh, But it's about the size of a phone book. So if you uh, want to sit down and read it, carve out a lot of time. Um, It's a story of a man named Edmond Dantes. And he's a sailor on a merchant ship. And he's fantastic. And, and just about everyone loves him. Um, he gets promised to be the captain of uh, his ship, which is going to change his whole life, set the trajectory in a totally different direction. He has a beautiful bride-to-be waiting for him in Marseille, where he's uh, coming in to port. And everything seems to be going wonderfully for Edmund. And in one day, everything turns upside down. Those that he thought closest to him betray him and sabotage him. And he ends up in prison where he sits for 13 years. No hope of getting out. And he begins the journey saying, God, you will give me justice. God, you are my provider. God, you will get me through this. And then that hope turns to despair, and he begins to make promises in his heart. If I ever get out of here, I will have revenge on those who put me here. And this hate begins to swell inside of him. And then miraculously, and I won't give away the whole story, miraculously, um, Dantes gets out of prison and his life is in a completely different place. In a place that you would say this man has experienced the blessings of God in, in unbelievable ways. And yet everything that drives Dantes, the rest of the story is hatred. It's tied to the promises that he made, that he would have vengeance and revenge. You guys, there are promises that we are living out today that are driving your decision-making and your behavior and the way you think of yourself and the way you think about others. We make these promises. Maybe they aren't verbal, but they're in our heart. Things like, I will never be like my father. I will never be like my mother. I will never be uh, like the way they talk to me. I will never be like that. The way they treated me, I will never be like that. The way they spent money, the failure that they were, I will never be like that. We make these promises in our heart. Maybe you say, I will never be poor like my family was poor. I will never subject my children to the kind of upbringing that I had. It'll be different. Or maybe in your heart you say, I I, I will never, I can never forgive that person for what they did to me. I won't. Do you understand that these are vows, these are promises that are cemented in our heart, tied to experiences that wounded us deeply, and they change the way we see the world, the way we see ourselves, the way we see others. 
we need to understand the power in those things. The power of our past. The power of those promises. The power of those experiences. The power of our families. Our family of origin that we grew up in. And the way it shaped the way we see life. It's incredibly important. So parents, prepare to be terrified. This was very sobering for me as a, as a father. We need to think about what has been passed down to us. Not just what's been done to us, but what's been passed down to us. In Exodus chapter 20, which we read at the beginning here, uh, there's a clear indication that sin as well as blessing can be passed down from generation to generation. And maybe just hearing that in your seat, you're thinking, yes, I know. I know those things that my grandparents did, uh, that then my parents did, that now I struggle with. Maybe you can identify those easily. Maybe you can't. Um, but there is, Scripture tells us there is this element of sin that can be passed down from generation to generation. Now, I want to pause for a second and say that every affliction, every trial you go through is not tied to sin. Right? In John chapter 9, Jesus makes it very clear. The disciples say, who sinned, this blind man or his parents, that he was born blind? Whose sin is it? And Jesus says, neither. It's neither of their sin, but that the works of God might be evident in him. So we know that not everything that happens to us is tied to sin of the past. And yet we know also, we hold these things in tension, that generational sin is a real thing. So how are, what are some ways that we can identify what's been passed down to us? What are some ways we can begin to see these themes or, or, or see these symptoms of generations past? One way, practical way, is doing something called a geneogram. A geneogram is a map, if you will, that lays out generation to generation. And you can take those and begin to write down some of the things that you remember from the past. Elements, symptoms. Let me give you uh, an example in King David of the Bible. Uh, first and second Samuel uh, uh, give us the entirety of David's life. Um, and, and I want you to remember before we look at David's uh, genogram, that 1 Samuel 13 said that David was a man after God's own heart. Right? God took the throne away from Saul, gave it to David because he said, I'm looking for a man after my own heart. There were three things that an Israelite king was not supposed to do. They were not to accumulate wealth for themselves. They were not to rely on anything other than the Lord their God, not their chariots, not their weapons, not their armies, but only on the Lord their God. And they were not to have more than one wife. David was two for three. Over the course of his uh, life, David collected several wives and then added to those concubines. And there are many scholars that believe that David, King David, had a, a sexual addiction And that was evident when he was 40, 40 to 50 years old, standing atop his palace on the roof, and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. Remember, he has 
many wives, many concubines. He sees a woman bathing, and he says, I want her. So his servants bring her to him. He sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant. And then David makes a series of decisions trying to cover up what he's done that ends with Bathsheba's husband. Yes, she's married. Bathsheba's husband Uriah being murdered. David setting him up for murder. So you have this man, a man after God's own heart, who is living at the the height now of the Israelite kingdom in Jerusalem. Fantastically successful and popular king. And he is living in adultery. His hands are stained by murder. And he's constantly dealing with this sexual addiction, sexual sin. This is what David's geneogram looks like. You can see that the next generation after David, in Amnon, in Absalom, in Solomon, we see the same thing, adultery, murder, sexual sin, sexual addiction, passed down. Amnon was David's firstborn. He was the heir to his throne, and yet he desired his sister, Tamar. And so he sent for her, and he brought her in, and he rapes his sister. And then Absalom, Tamar's brother, in vengeance, goes after Amnon and murders him. All of the same elements living out in the next generation of David's life. And then Solomon becomes the heir. And Solomon uh, vastly outdoes David. Um, He has 700 wives and 300 concubines. I don't know how that's physically possible. (laughs) He's a busy man. At one time, Solomon is called the wisest man on earth. And yet all, many of those same elements of David's sin and brokenness are passed on to Solomon. And within three generations from David, who's living at the height of the the kingdom of Israel, as Rehoboam becomes king and is living in the same sexual brokenness, the kingdom ends in civil war and is divided. Three generations. We see the generational sin passed down. This is not fun to think about. But this is important for us to think about. And I want to challenge you guys, especially if you're in community groups, that you guys would take some time this week and actually map this out. You may be surprised at what you find. Now, it's one thing to talk about characters in the Bible. It's another to get real and share it with one another. So... Uh, we're going to look at the geneogram of Dave Daly. This is not fun either. My grandfather, Thomas, his original last name was Bueno. Uh, He was an immigrant, came from an immigrant family from Cuba, uh, living in Miami before they moved to Ohio. As most immigrant families uh, are, are set up, his whole life and drive was to get an education and get a good job. Establish a life in America. And for him, that set the course of a life of um, finding all his identity in work. 
is a workaholic. No question about it. But you can only do that physically. You can only keep up working the amount of hours that he worked, pouring yourself into a life of striving on your own for so long. And so you began to medicate, and he became an alcoholic. He married my grandmother, Billy Lee Lohman. How many, uh, anyone in here named Billy Lee? Probably not. Oh, yeah, whatever. Uh, she came from a, a very wealthy family in South Florida, in the West Palm area. And um, my, so my grandfather married into a, a great family, established family, just what he was looking for, and started this life together that was meant to be everything that you dream of, the American life being. My grandfather and my grandmother had two daughters. Uh, my grandfather changed his last name to Gibson uh, because... At that time, Cuban immigrants were not looked on very highly in Miami, and so I tried to assimilate, changed his last name. They had two daughters, Linda, my mother, and Donna. Now, my mother's still alive, and uh, if I shared all of her junk with you today, my genogram would stop uh, right now. (laughs) So I'm sparing, she will listen to this podcast at some point, Um, so I'm sparing my mother, but needless to say, there were things that were passed on. Uh, from my grandmother and my grandfather to, to my mother. Um, one of those was actually a, a, um, a result of my grandfather's workaholism. She um, was very lonely. Uh, she felt abandoned, rejected by her father, who was very rarely home or around. And so she ran into the arms of a young man named Joseph Broussard. Uh, my biological father. Now, Joseph came from uh, a line of uh, Creole, um, French uh, family. He had, they were Catholic. I think he had like nine brothers and sisters. Um, And I don't know much about them because I didn't know my dad for very long. Um, I have a few memories of my grandfather, which I just call Grandpa Broussard because I don't know what his name was. Um, one was that he'd wake up really early in the morning to feed the chickens. They were on, owned a, a farm in Texas, and I would get up early and I'd walk out, and I just remember him wearing coveralls uh, and having the chicken feed and it being really early in the morning. That's one memory I have. The second was when my younger brother, Jordan, was born. We were at the hospital, and it was just my grandfather and I in the waiting room, and I was expected to sit in the seat for like hours on end and I was going crazy. So I would get up and run around and he, my grandfather would try to grab me and put me back in the seat. And I thought this was really fun because he couldn't get me uh, until <laughs> uh, at one point he gets a hold of me and he gets a hold of me hard and he gives it to me and he starts just wailing on me in that waiting room. It's the only other memory I have of my grandfather. And there was, undoubtedly, in this generation, a lot of alcoholism, a lot of anger that was violent anger, a lot of abuse. And that was passed on to my father. And I remember that very clearly, very clearly. Actually, there's one point that probably is the, the moment that was m- the greatest catalyst of my life. In understanding myself, the people around me, and the way I saw the world. 
my uh, parents were fighting over taco casserole. And by fighting over, I don't mean they were fighting to get more of it. Um, my mom was working two jobs, came home and made dinner that night. It was just my brother and I and my dad. And my dad was not working at all, but he was drinking quite a bit. And we're sitting at the table, and he begins complaining about the taco casserole, how nasty it is. And my mom is pretty much fed up with him, so she begins mouthing off to him about being lazy and being a drunk. At this point, I get up, as I usually would, walk into the other room, and sit down on the couch, turn on the TV. And the voices get louder. I know where this is going. This happens all the time. There will be shouts. There will be profanity. There will be slamming of doors. I'm just bracing myself. I know what's coming. That's different on this night. I'm sitting in the kitchen, or sitting in, in the, the living room, not right next to the kitchen. And the voices are getting louder, and I hear a fist into flesh and broken bone and screaming. And I jump off the couch and into the kitchen, and I see my mother on the ground holding her face with a pool of blood. I see my father standing over her. And he tears off a paper towel, drops it in the pool of blood, and says, clean it up yourself. And I can't tell you what an impact that moment had on the rest of my life. I hated my father. At that point on, I, I, I can't ever remember thinking a good thought about my father. I hurt for my mother and I wanted to protect her, but I'm seven years old. And I just don't know how to do that. So I feel helpless. And I grab my little brother and I take him into his room and I lock the door. And that's someone I can try to save. You guys need to understand that this, I don't tell this story for a wow factor. I don't, certainly don't tell it for a woe is me I'm telling you this because many of you have the same story or elements of it. And you need to know that this set the trajectory of my life for a very, very long time. My dad ends up uh, leaving. My parents get divorced not long after that. My dad moves into a studio apartment just a few blocks away. And about a year later, my mom is going to drop my brother and I off. And there's a note taped on the door. Essentially saying, I've had enough, I'm moving on with my life. Never saw my dad again, never heard from him again. I don't know if he is alive or not at this point. That was the last communication ever. In a lot of ways, I was relieved. <laughs> he was a monster. I was out of my life. But man, it set for me the way I thought about men that my, my mom dated she got married not too long after that to a man named Charles Daly, who adopted my brother and I. And it was a mess. He had two boys of his own. And it was a lifetime of pecking order for attention, for love. 
If you guys take some time and map this out, I think you'll see some, hopefully not all of the same elements in the generations past. I can tell you this, I have married a beautiful, godly, gracious, wonderful woman named Noelle. She's been gentle with me and loving and caring and helped me heal in so many ways. And yet, I can be honest with you guys, I still struggle with anger. It's still there. It is covered by the blood of Jesus. He has set me free in so many ways, but there is an element of my heart that's still angry. And I can get violent. I know it's in there. I dealt with it a lot when I was young. It's still there. I'm constantly walking with Jesus into that place. God, heal it, take it, free me. So I want you guys to take some time and do that. I think it can be really helpful for you. There may be a lot of other elements that are different from the ones you see on the screen. You may deal with anxiety and fear. This is a very common one. There may be elements and experiences in your life that have just made you afraid. And when things get stirred up, that fear comes. Where does that come from? You need to look at that. Addictions, alcohol, drugs, sex, pornography, all kinds of addictions that get passed on from generation to generation. Infidelity. There are so many leaders. When we... Like Bill Clinton, if you looked at Bill Clinton's genogram, there are generations of infidelity. Generations that this has gone on. It's no surprise. Having children out of wedlock. Anger, violence, abuse. I believe there's an opportunity here for us to get so many things that are from the darkness into the light and really examine them. So what do we do? What do we do with these symptoms? What do we do with these painful experiences that our symptoms point to? Here's what we often do. One, we hide from them. Or we try to hide them themselves. Um, there's something in us that wants to pretend like that never happened. I can tell you guys there were decades of my life that tried to repress and block out that experience with my mom and dad. That just wanted to say, yes, that was then, but it's gone now. That's not who I am. It's a whole new start. Forget about it. There's a part of me that wants to do that. Um, there's this interesting thing that happened when Facebook had their 10-year anniversary and they were doing all the look back videos. Um, those are so annoying. <laughs> yeah, you joined in 2009. Um, but I had a friend, no joke, I had a friend who tried to go back and delete some of the posts that she had made because she didn't want to see them in the video. They were hurt. There were places of brokenness now. That may have been joyful then, but they're brokenness now. She was literally trying to reorient her past so she could put the video up, everyone would see it, and they would not see any of that brokenness. It's hiding it. There's a girl I met with just recently in my office, and she, she's telling me that I, 
as a, as a girl, she would go through her diary and she would tear out pages of the bad things. I just don't want to remember the bad things. Let's pretend like those things never happened. There's a part of our heart that, that wants that, just to get away from them. And so a second thing we do is we run from them. We run away from the bad experiences. We run away from the people that have hurt us. And I know it's not too extreme to say that some of you, some of us in this room, in this city, are here in San Francisco because we are running from whatever was at home. Just getting away. Starting a new life. The irony is that oftentimes those who run the farthest are the ones who are most entrapped by the past. You can't run far enough away. Another way that we deal, deal with these things, especially in the church, is we spiritualize them. We are notorious for this. People who are brokenhearted, they find sanctuary in the church. And what does the church do? Tell them to read their Bible. Tell them they need to be praying every morning and doing their devotion. It would probably be good if you're volunteering. And we spiritualize people's lives. Uh, Dallas Willard calls this the gospel of sin management. That we just try to manage our sin because that gets us the ticket into heaven. As if when we get to the gates of heaven, they don't celebrate us being there. They say, oh, you're with Jesus? All right. Come in. We just manage our sin. I had a friend who's more like a brother. Had a very similar upbringing as I did. Uh, we met in middle school. Uh, grew up together through high school. Played sports together. Did Tons of stupid stuff together. Got in lots of trouble uh, together. And then in college, our paths separated. And he got into some really dark things. Uh, drug use became a regular part of his life. Alcohol became an even more important part of his life. Gambling turned into an addiction. He met a girl who was similarly broken as, as he was, and they clung to one another, tried to make a life together, and walked through all kinds of brokenness and adultery and uh, just wounded each other more deeply than they were before they met. And then they get to this deep, dark, empty place where there's nothing left, and they go to the church. And the church... Tells my buddy, come on in. We want you to get on this reading plan. You're going to read three hours a day. Every day, three hours you're going to spend in scripture. And then we're going to get you in this discipleship class. And you're going to take this class, a 12-week class. And then not only will you understand yourself better, you'll be able, able to teach others. And you're going to, we need you to volunteer. You're part of this. We want you to volunteer. And my, my buddy starts doing these things, and I'll tell you what, he felt relief. He felt alive. And he's telling me, he's calling me, he's like, Dave, you won't believe it, I, I found Jesus. Oh, man, things are so much better. I'm not drinking anymore. 
Portia and I, we're, we're, we're working on our marriage. It's getting better. Man, thank God for the church. And here's what was happening. <laughs> here's what was happening. My buddy was changing the landscape of his life. He was changing the landscape. This is what one pastor calls becoming a mile wide and an inch deep. You could look on the landscape of my buddy's life and there was no more alcoholism and there was no more gambling and there was no more adultery. And in place he was reading scripture and he could quote scripture to you. And he was spending time in prayer and he was in these classes and he was really involved in the church and everything looked different. And so they went on for about three years this way. And in that three years, they tried to have a baby. They thought, this will be the thing. This will be what cements our change. We will have a manifest blessing of God that will show us, like, everything is different now. The past is the past. We've moved on. But it wasn't happening. They couldn't get pregnant. So they started doing in vitro, and they started going to other doctors, and they went over to the Czech Republic for some kind of miraculous thing that was going on there that would help them, and nothing happened. And now things began to unravel again. And she was less and less inclined to be near to her husband. She was bitter. And my buddy calls me and he's crying. He says, Dave, what is happening? Where is God? Haven't I done all these things? I've changed my life. And I just let him cry. And he would just cry and cry. And he started drinking again. And she would come home less often. And eventually she went away with another man. My buddy started drinking more. And this crazy thing happened. He got a DUI. Driving home from a bar one night, got a DUI. And he was forced to go into Alcoholics Anonymous. He didn't want to go. He was forced to go. And when he went, this crazy thing happened. There was a community of people there who let him cry on their shoulder. A community of people that said, yes, yes, you know, I understand why you're doing this. Do you get afraid? Do you ever get afraid of being alone? Do you, what was your family like that you grew up in? And they began to dig into the deep, dark places of my buddy's heart and break open the soil. They were not content. All of them knew that the landscape can change, but the roots that aren't dealt with will choke out any new life. You gotta find the roots. It means you got to get dirty. you got to dig. I can tell you now that my, my buddy is divorced. 
Uh, he's trying to rebuild his life. But he feels more in love with Jesus. He feels more known by God and by other people than he ever has. He has a desire to open his heart to these broken places, not run and hide from them. He's seen the healing that happens. And church, I'm begging us. I'm begging you. To be those people that start with ourselves and take a deep, hard, open look at the wounds, at the roots, at the deep, dark places and open them up to the Lord and to the people around you. That's the fourth thing that we can do. Honestly face our past and share it in a community of love. And yes, you will read your Bible because it's the word of life. And yes, you will pray because you have a father that wants to hear your voice. And he may take you into new things and new places. But it's not because you have to. It's because he has good plans for you. We need to understand God's posture to our brokenness because I think we have a screwed up way of thinking about it. That God says, get your together and then come to me and I'll put you to work. As if that would earn us some place at his table. That's not the way it is. In John chapter 5, uh, I won't read it to you because I'm talking a really long time. <clears throat> In John chapter 5, there's a story of a, a, a crippled man near a pool called Bethesda. And people believe that an angel would come down, stir the pool, and whoever could get in first would be healed. And so this man, this crippled man, sat by the pool for 38 years. 38 years he sat there reminded by everyone around him of his sin, of his brokenness, of his unworthiness, of his shame. He sat there. And then Jesus shows up one day. And Jesus asks this crazy question. He asks the man, do you want to be well? What kind of question is that? 38 years the man's been sitting by the pool and he tells Jesus, I've been sitting here trying to get into the pool. Of course I want to be healed. But the question Jesus is asking is deeper than just changing his physical body. Jesus is giving him an invitation. You guys, Jesus gives us an invitation to healing. He will not twist your arm. He will not force you into those deep, dark places. That's not his way. He loves you too much for that. But he does say to you today, he says to you, do you want to be well? He invites us. He extends his hand to us. And the truth is, some of us don't want to be well. The truth is that some of us are very comfortable in our seat this morning, leaving what happened behind way back in the rearview mirror. 
I understand. I know that feeling of not wanting to go into those places. But you have a savior king. More importantly, you have this gracious father extending his hand to you. Do you want to be well? Inviting you. And what is the invitation? I want you to understand that, yes, Jesus will heal all of the past. He will. This is his promise to us. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. There is new life. He promises that when we come into Christ, we become partakers We become a part of God's divine nature, a new nature. He says that those who believe in Christ, from their innermost, their innermost being, will flow rivers of living water. Yes, he will make all things new. But we have to allow him into those places. We have to open our heart to him in those broken places. We can't pretend like they never happened. And when we do, as Dave Lomas talked about last week, we enter into more than just healing. We enter into a new family. Scripture tells us that we are adopted into the family of God. What does adoption mean? It means you get a new name. It means you get all the rights and privileges of the Father. It means that finally you get to call someone worthy of the name. You get to call them Daddy, Abba, that intimate closeness that you've never experienced before, perhaps, that I hadn't. Your genogram can take on a new bloodline. In Jesus. Take it in a totally different direction. But here's the challenge today. And I promise I'm going to wrap up. God doesn't give us amnesia when we come to Christ. When you come to Christ, he doesn't zap everything that was in the past. Instead, he redeems it for us. Our past is redeemed, but it's not removed. This is hard to say to the church. We want to celebrate the victory of the cross, which we rightly should. But we have to let the power of the cross into the deep, dark places of our heart. Instead, what we do is we say, yes, Jesus, and we run. We don't open our heart. We want to be embraced, but we don't want to open our heart. And that's the invitation today. This is a hard place to land. But I believe what God is inviting us to when he says, do you want to be well? He's saying today, will you let me into those deep places? And that's where we're to sit today as a church family. Actually allow some space in us For God to surface those broken places. 
because he wants them. He wants us to invite him into those places. He won't force his way in. So there's a few things that we can do to make this happen. We can continually look at our lives. This is reflection. Continually look at our lives to identify where the past is dictating today. And if we're honest with ourselves, there are places that's happening in all of us. We can commit to a life of discipleship. A life of it, not a class, okay, not a curriculum, a life of discipleship for the rest of our lives. This is how Peter Cesaro describes discipleship. It is honest, regular reflection on the positive and negative impact of our family of origin and other major influences in our life. Honest, regular reflection on this. This is the way that Christ sanctifies us. He walks with us continually in these places. And this is hard work. I don't mean hard work like striving for God. I mean it can be painful to dig into those hard places that we built up walls. Finally, we can live in the context of church as a family. As Dave Lomas said last week, we have this opportunity to be, to be reparented. Do you understand that so much of my life has been reparenting me? My life being reshaped, my lens being fixed, being cleaned to understand what I'm actually seeing around me. That happens in the context of this together. Please be in a community group not for numbers, not for promotion. Be there because there's a family of people that will walk with you in this. We need each other to do it. All right. Here's what I think God's calling us to do right now. For us to actually go to some of these places, and I know you need to pee, all right, but just hang with me, okay? For us to go into these places... There's something we have to learn how to do. We have to learn how to grieve, church. Guys, we have to learn how to grieve because you've been hurt. It's not right, the things that have happened to you. And it's not enough to cast them aside. Let them be healed. Let them be redeemed. So what we're going to do right now is create some space for that. I'm going to invite the worship team out. And this is what I think, God, as I was praying for this, this is what God told me to do last night. Um, and so I'm going to be faithful to do it. I'm going to read um, Psalm 69 over us. And I just want you to sit in it. If you would, um, close your eyes. And I'm going to read it slow. It's not short, Okay. These are the words of David, King David, who we just saw had an absolutely jacked up life. And yet he cries out to the Lord in Psalm 69. And there are words in this psalm that I believe will be words in your heart. That your heart is actually crying and, and, and maybe this will give a voice to it. 
So I'm just going to read it, and I just want you to rest in it, and then I'll pray. Psalm 69. Can I get a little more light here? (laughs) That's good. All right. I'm all into the mood and everything, but I can't read. All right, church. God, I I know, I just believe, God, we're doing this in faith. I believe uh, this is for some of us, if not all of us. Lord, would you meet us in your word right now, Jesus? Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold for me. I have come into the deep waters. The flood engulfs me. I'm worn out, calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes failing looking for you, my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause. Those who destroy, seek to destroy me, I'm forced to restore what I did not steal. You, God, know my folly. My guilt is not hidden from you. Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. God of Israel, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. For I endure scorn for your sake, and, I, and shame covers my face. I'm a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. For zeal for your house consumes me and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me and I am the song of the drunkards. But I pray to you, Lord, in the time of your favor, in your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me, from the deep waters. Do not let the flood waters engulf me or the depths swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, Lord. Out of the goodness of your love, in your great mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Deliver me because of my foes. You know how I am scorned and disgraced and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. 
They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. May the table before them, Lord, become a snare. May it become retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents. For they persecute those you wound and talk about the pain of those you hurt. Charge them with the crime upon crime. Do not let your salvation be shared in them. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. But as for me, afflicted and in pain, may your salvation, God, protect me. I will praise God's name in song and glorify him in thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with horns and hooves. The poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and all that move in him. For God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. Then people will settle there and possess it. The children of his servants will inherit it. And those who love his name will dwell there. God, the pain of David's cry, Lord, is real in our hearts, Lord Jesus. And you see it and you know it. God, we ask so often why these things happen. But you don't tell us why. Instead, God, you tell us who you are. Our Father. Our Rescuer. Our Comforter. Our Salvation. Our Refuge. And God, you say you are a warrior God who will fight for his people We need you, Jesus. God, would you take us to those places we're afraid to go? Lord, would you take us by the hand as your little sons and your little daughters, and would you walk with us, Lord, and let us not be afraid. Let us not be afraid. Because you're great and you're good and your love is right. Thank you, Jesus.